Focus your eyes on the Lord and let him lead us forward. Okay? And that being said, uh, let's pray together. Uh, Tommy, I know I caught you off guard. Did you pray for us? I'm sorry, go. Put the praise report. Um, yes. Just want to thank God. Um, always, he's always in for praise. Always our power God. And every time he hears us. But uh, if it wasn't for men praying for me last Sunday, there was God intervention for sure. Um, my body felt better, stronger, which I'm doing a lot of stuff. I'll tell you later. But because of that, I, uh, I foolishly just messed up myself. I cannot get back on first ship. My attendance is terrible. But I really believe it because it was not happening last week, two weeks ago. There was somebody that needed to switch on shifts. So I got back on first shift starting last week, which was really important for me because the night shift was killing me. And so just for the men praying for me, I just want to say there is power in that prayer. And I believe that really it wouldn't have happened because I messed up. Like, if you knew what I did, just mess up my intense all stuff. I don't deserve that chance. But men stepping up and praying for me, I'm back on first shift and I'm starting to feel a lot better, a lot mentally healthy, strong. So I just want to say thank you guys. I'll just thank God for prayer. So. Amen. He had known, he had known that it really would help him get back on first shift, and he had requested, and they told him no, it's not available to you. You can't do it. Can't do first shift. And then after we prayed, can you go around? God is one who does that. Okay. All right, Tom. Dear God, we thank you for for the rain today that can grow plants. And sometimes they'll come after We pray for everyone here that we do something out of the sermon and that gives people a little lesson and we hope they do. And we that very deep. Amen.
moving this morning. Speaks to us, 
or a verse that leads us to a chain of thought where you really speak to us. Lord, we also know that sometimes you just say, hey, stop right there. That's wrong. You're crossing the line. Other times you say, hey, go forward, go faster, go stronger, go harder, because it is what's right. So, Lord, we're looking back on the week since we were here last, and we're asking you right now in this moment to point out to us what it was that you've been saying, what it was that we saw that we need to pay attention to, what it was that you were, how you were working on us. Father, I know that even as we sit here now praying, there are people who have thoughts in their head that are evil spirits or distractions or thinking about something else. It's hard to have a single-minded focus today because the world has many voices and are many evil spirits. They outnumber us, but they don't outnumber your angels and they don't outnumber you and they do not have strength that you do not have. The greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So right now we're praying in the name of the Lord Jesus to rebuke voices that have nothing to do with you. Lord, pass them all out and help us today to listen to what you are saying. Show us what you've been saying, and if necessary, show us something new right now, that we may speak up and show others what it is that you're saying in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright? What do you got? What came to mind? What did you I got one. Uh, Alright. So... In my journey through the Bible, I read through, I'm up to the point where Saul, Israel's first king, he's king, he doesn't like David, he's looking for him to get rid of him. David's already been anointed by Samuel, here he was, to be the next king. He's on the run, and Saul's trying to kill him. So he's hiding, hiding up this man in a cave, deep in a cave, and this was just after get a little ahead of myself because I was reminded of when they're being critical of Jesus about his disciples meaning leaf of the field on the Sabbath and, and um, he reminded them that um, the, they gave David the, the holy bread that it was consecrated for that use of David's bed as required to us. And one thing I didn't never get about the story I didn't pay attention to was the priest had asked him if his bed had been in the lives of them made themselves ceremonial unclean, I guess you would say. And he said, no, that when his men are on the job, they're focused on that. So David's already instilling a value in his men about serving God and being in a proper mindset. Now we're in the cave, and Saul finally was in that area, and he goes in the cave to take care of some business, and didn't know David was there, David snuck up a cup. He's a robot. This men told him, you know what, this, this is a good opportunity for you to get rid of him. And um, so this is the key point. He could have went in and killed him and then taken his throne. But he knew that it would be wrong to raise a hand against God's anointing, which was all love. So he cut a piece of the robe off. And instead, when he left the cave, then he showed him, you know, hey, I could have picked you up. And um, so sometimes... When circumstances come to life, you think, you think you're getting directed in a certain direction and you think you should do something just based on circumstances. Take time to think about what does the Bible say about it? What does God teach? Is there something 
that I think it seems to be the right way to go, but not really easy the scripture and rethink what you're doing. Because if David would have killed Saul, then once he teaches his men and without the anointed, maybe when he's king and some of them don't like what he's doing, they'll come back and have part of them being taught the value that you don't have that anointed. And so also, if you would have killed King Saul, then you probably would have had his entire family anyone else on Saul's side, the whole country would have left So, just take your time and let think about doing things right. Sometimes there's a way to seem quite, you won't be quite questioning. Proverbs says there's a way that looks right unto a man, but it leads to death. And I, I, I guarantee you, if he'd taken him, if he'd gone against Saul in that cave, that was, that was not a way that he wanted to go. That was the way he was taken into a place where God did not want him to be. Good word. Very good. Okay. Who else? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you mine real quick. So it's interesting how mine relates to yours because it's about a rope. Uh, we were talking about the, the woman who had the 12-year issue. Uh, she had an issue of blood for 12 years and she... Uh, this, this came out of the spiritual gift fellowship. We talked about faith as spiritual gift on Thursday night. And we talked about the woman who had faith that she could be healed by Jesus. She was looking at Jesus and she was thinking, I've had this issue for 12 years and I've literally tried everything else. I've always been this way. I tried every doctor, every medicine. She basically ran herself broke, tried everything she could. And she thought about Jesus and she thought, she didn't think, man, I need to go beg him for healing or I need to go see him, or whatever. She didn't even feel worthy to go into his presence and ask him to heal her. But she thought, if I could just sneak up and touch his robe, right? If I could just sneak up and touch his robe, then I would be healed. And I think there's a lot of people in the world who believe they have a conscious knowledge that there is a God. But not only do they not come to God through Christ, which is the only way somebody can come to God, but they don't feel worthy to do so. I remember when I was a young person before I ever got saved, I didn't get saved until I was 25, but the time, between the time that I was about 11 and 25, I believed there was a God. I believed that God was real. And I thought of some incredible, very, like, I had some, what I almost call, like, holy thoughts about God. Like, I, I told a story at the spiritual gift fellowship about how I, my, my organizational system in my bedroom, some of, some of you young people might relate to this, but I had an, a horizontal organization system. Everything I owned was spread out on the floor, literally everything. But there was very little room, like you could, you had to nudge something to sit, put your foot down. You know what I mean, like that kind of thing. And then my dad built me shelves, and then over a period of time, I filled the shelves, and then went back to organizing everything horizontally on the floor. I did not have piles. That's different. Like I didn't make piles of things. I want everything out flat so I could see it uh, until the time I was a teenager, anyway. And I was, I was leaving with my parents to go somewhere. I was crossing the room, and there was a Bible in the middle of the floor. And I went to put my foot down, and if my foot had come down, it would have stepped on the Bible. It was the Bible that my brother owned, that my grandfather had given him, and my brother had given it to me. It was already, you know, a little beat up, inked up, whatever. It was just, just a book to me, but it was God's book. And even though I, didn't, I believed in God, but I didn't trust God, but I, I didn't know about Jesus at all. And I went to go put my foot down, and my foot would have landed on that Bible. And I said, I can't put my foot there. And so I'm already off balance. I swung my foot out to try to put it somewhere else. And I put it down on a toy, and it hurt. And then I was totally off balance. And I wound up collapsing down into my pile of horizontal organization. And I got all scraped up and bruised and everything, all because I didn't want to step on that Bible. I wasn't saved. Didn't know God. 
but I had a sense of his holiness. And I submit to you that in the world, right now, amongst lost people, there are a lot of people who have been called to God who kind of get an understanding of that holiness, but they feel unworthy to come to God, or they feel like they can't, or they feel like they don't know how, or whatever. And that's what the Great Commission is all about. That's what Christians are all about. That's what the church is all about. Telling people everywhere. So we should be living for God in a way that they'll look at us and go, well, that person's something a little bit different. It doesn't have to be perfect. But there's something a little bit odd about them. And then you get in a conversation and tell them. And one of the first things I encourage you to tell them is, it was never a road. I'm not to use those, I'm being metaphorical, whatever those exact words. But it's not about coming into close proximity with Jesus. It's not about touching Jesus or touching something that was touched by Jesus or even coming to church or singing worship songs or acting like the church, whatever. It's not about anything like that. It's about coming into a right relationship with God through Jesus' his Son. And you can try to sneak up on Jesus and be healed. Try to sneak up on Jesus and have the plan of your life unfold in a positive way. But it doesn't actually work. The only way to do it is to truly come to him humbly Let's say confessing our sin, admitting that we have sin, admitting that we're not saved, believing in Jesus Christ as Lord, that means he tells you what to do and you do it, believing in him as Savior, that means he paid the price for your sins, knowing that God raised him from the dead, and receiving salvation. And that's it. And then after that, there's no work other than those three things that can essentially be done, and belief is not really a work that we can do. But I submit to you that there are a lot of people in the world that are like that, and our job is to find them, and show them what they're already looking for. And I'll end on this illustration. Went to Tony Paco's with a, a youth pastor and two teenagers who were looking about bringing a mission team up. And there was a young lady there, and, we got, and I got to witnessing with her, and I offered to pray for her, and she said, okay, and then, and then she came back, back later, and I asked her if she'd stop back at the table when she had a little bit of time. She was working in the bar, and she came over, she, she um, stopped at the table, and I asked her about her faith. She told me she'd been in a car accident and almost died. Died actually right after the car accident for like 13 seconds or something. And then almost died after that and wasn't able to walk and all these things. And she had to remake her life. And she said she felt like God was bringing her through that for a purpose. But she didn't know God or who God was. She openly saying this. I don't know who God was. I don't know who God is. I don't know how to know God. I don't know anything about God. But I felt like God was doing that. And I said, well, this is what the Bible says. And I explained it to her. Mind you, this is in the middle of 20 Pacos. And these guys are looking at me like, you're a little bit weird for doing this, especially when we're trying to have a meeting. And then she wound up standing there, te tears streaming down her face and praying to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. But the, but the point is, she already knew that God was real and was working in her life. Acts, 16, 7, I'm sorry, Acts 17 says that God oriented all of the parameters and boundaries of our lives so that we might grope around for him and by some chance find him and then realize he was never very far away in the first place. This is the problem. Those people that are out there in the world are acting like fools. They're acting like lost people. That's what they're doing. They're acting like lost people. And they're lost because they have not come into a relationship with God. And I'm going to be a little bit raw about this for a second. Sometimes that's because we, the church, have not gone and shown them how to do that. But sometimes it's because they're too fond of their sin. Or sometimes it's because... They're caught up in addiction, or they've got real problems, whatever it might be. There are lots of reasons. Um, and some of them, then there are people that even think that they're saved. And I, and I may be critical when I say this, but I think people who think that they're saved and aren't are usually worse people, worse, have more sin, more wicked, more problems to their nature and like that, than people who are not saved. 
Besides the not saved people, they might have a little fear about God and wonder. They might fall down rather than stepping on the Bible. But the people who think they're saved and aren't, they think they're okay. Let's step on that Bible in a minute. I'm not going to hurt myself to keep from disrespecting God. Because God loves me and sent his son to die me. So whatever, I can do whatever I want. And they become pretty darn wicked. You know, and then there are people that say, "Well, I know who God is, and I don't—I flat out don't want to be saved." And they're pretty bad too. But I'm not trying to judge people. I'm just saying that Rube was never the issue, and it was when she came and said, "Jesus said your faith has healed you," and then he basically declared her saved and sent her away. Don't sneak up on Jesus. Come right out of the open, right out of the open, and say, "Look, I got my issues." The Lord Jesus. I submit myself to you. So, Alright, uh, 28 and Arjun. Real quick, your name just popped in my head, but I was just thinking about the very next time there was a book about Jonah. Everybody knows Jonah's, you know, trying to flee because he was supposed to go to Nineveh, he was eating by a whale, and spit back out so he could go to Nineveh, but at first he just thought he could flee from God, but he never could. And the book just shows him fleeing from God, and he's on a boat, and in, in the boat, he's in the bottom of the, of the deck, and uh, there's a hole, a little hole where the light can shine in. And it's really funny, it's like, so he, you know, he went to them, across the other side of the earth, like literally, as far away from Israel as he could, as far as away from Israel, all the way he could. And um, he's hiding under this boat, and he's like, you know, God can't see him. And there's a light where the window is peering right through, and it's just missing Jonah. If he would just like step up, the light would shine on him. And he's like, just right here. So it's just like, you know, it, it, it not maybe anything, but the, the, the picture is, is Jonah thinks he's completely did it. I got away from God. Right. I got away from my mission. And the light is literally shining through this, this door, like look like a doggy door on a boat. And Jonah's this close, literally, to like letting the light shine on him. So God is not, even if you go to the farthest ends of the earth, no matter where you go, even David's, so I go to the bottom, so you're there with me. And I fly on the highest eagle in the, in the heavens, you're there as well. But God is always there. So just something to think about. No matter what. You can't escape God. And God's not trying to get you to escape. He loves us. He's holy. He's right. He's true. And he's just waiting for you to just look up and see the light shine. Amen. What's interesting about that is he couldn't get up without getting touched by the light. Okay. Our Got a video? Rocking with the light? Okay. What about that? Uh, so... I've actually seen this guy's concert do this song, and it's really, it's really amazing. But the message in the song is so incredible because all of us, all of us have problems, and the problem is we hold a lot of those problems inside. We don't like to express them, we don't like to show them, we don't like to share them. But we all have them, and it gets to the point to where it's so much that you hold on to that you can't let go anymore. Because you're afraid that people will find out the real you. And they might not like the real you. And you have to understand that you might think that well, God knows who you are. God knows the real you. He knows the you you're supposed to be. He knows the you he wants you to be. So don't hold everything in. And always remember that God knows your pain. He knows your suffering. But there's also his love, which is like no love you'll ever find anywhere else. No husband, no wife, no boyfriend, no girlfriend, no child can show you the same love that God can show you. It is not physically possible for a human being to share the kind of love that God has for us. And that in itself is an amazing thing because we don't deserve that kind of love. 
because of the stuff that we do, the evil things that we've done or have done or will do in the future. We don't deserve that kind of love. And yet, God gives it to us freely and gives it to us daily. So, when you ever feel like you're down and out, just remember that God knows that. He knows that pain. He knows that hurt. But He also has that un unattainable love that you can get through His Son, Jesus Christ. Dude, the worst thing about the fact that we, that a lot of kids, you know, we early on memorized the poor God so loved the world that He saved, or that God gives only God Son, whosoever perished. John 3.16 verse is the fact that we skim right over the course that God so loved the world. That so is huge. That so means he loved us in a way that we can't understand. It's so much, so much, so much more, so much in, more intricate, so much more intense, so much more complete, so much more whole. It is a love that it that betters what it loves. And then, of course, in Testament Road, he is love. He is that love. That's in my video real quick. I just, like, I just need to you know, talk about God's love. God's also put love in us. It may not be yes. the ultimate love, but it is love. Yes. And when she cried out to that woman that she knew, it looked like they both strayed away in that video, but they're actually coming to find her. Right. The other two weren't looking for her, but when they found her, they consoled her. And so even though we're going through our roughest time, there are people just going through stuff just as worse. Yep. And if we're just caught up in our mess and dealing with our own selves, we could be, you know, blessing the others as well. So we're not the only ones that are suffering, there's other people suffering as well. And sometimes we have to reach out, you know, even while we're suffering, to help those. And at the same token, that woman that thought she was on her own, her best friend found her. Because it looked like, you know, that she was struggling, but no, she found her. So I would say because God still loves us well, He's put love in people, then we do need to sometimes be sincere to others and reach out so that people can reach out to you. It's hard because we can't always love God. We can't always be there, but there's still love inside of humanity. It's not to put your trust back in humanity, it's, but it's to put your love and trust back in the God that He's given us humanity. Amen. That's a very good word for you. Anybody else? Um, just sort of stuck on the video, and it reminded me of a theory, and I just can't remember the names of it. Um, but basically, there's this, this theory that came into my head that I must have read about somewhere when I was watching that basically is um, about the versions of self, self-image, uh, I guess you could say. But basically, the idea is that there are three yous, as you could say, the you that only you know. The you that only your close friends and family, you know, your circle of people knows, and then there's the you that the world sees. And it just kind of got me thinking in that video, there's a whole other you. There's a you that God only knows, and you don't know that you. At least not all of it. Um, there are pieces of yourself that are that come or that you don't really even see on your own, and so you don't Especially considering how how much we lose focus when we start to think about problems. You know, well, I'm the only person that has this problem, what was my situation, whatever, and you're missing out on the view that God only knows. That's powerful. Good stuff. Okay, we're going to pray together. Uh, we'll be tithes and offerings a little more worship and then go to the Word. Uh, Jason, would you pray for us as, and remember the tithes and offerings? And then as we go forward, please do. Thank you, 
also does me an actual point as well.
Thank <laughs> you. 
As I was sitting there, we were singing those last two songs, I became even a little bit more intimidated by this word that the Lord has been uh, sharing with me this last week. That's unusual, actually, because usually by the time I get up here, I have dealt with it. I have repented and committed myself to the Lord in the way that I'm best understanding it, and now I stand before you uh, even further convicted of what we've been studying, what I've been, God and I have been doing, I guess you could say, this last seven days. And so, here we go. First of all, you see the, there's a couple, four matters that we've got to deal with. First of all, you see the title. Um, it is a slow-acting poison and its antidote. We've been talking about, and Moses has been preparing the Israelites to go into the promised land. We've been talking about what he was giving them, like teachings that he was giving them to help them to understand what they would face while they're in there and how they would eventually stray from God. That's what we've largely been talking about. And he's been giving them some proactive um, suggestions, and uh, they're, you know, that's not really a strong enough word, but commands almost, about how to be prepared and how to handle what would happen to them and through them and in them and what God was going to be doing and what the enemy was going to be doing once they got into the promised land, because he's not going with them, as you may recall. So now, in this, in chapter 9... Moses talks to them about a slow-acting poison. Now, we've already talked about idolatry, and we've talked about the uh, being tempted or being distracted aside by the wealth that they would receive. Um, those were two things that he radically warned them about, and we talked about those in the last two or three weeks. But now we see in this passage of Scripture that there is a, a, a slow-acting poison that is built into being God's people that will eventually kill your forward progress, if not your soul, in the kingdom of God. And it, so it's a pretty big deal. All right, so two more things. So first, second thing is, uh, you may have heard, and it's been, it's been kind of tossed around in comments that people have made about how sometime, and it happened, uh, I can almost tell you what decade it happened in. It happened around 2000, between uh, 1995 and 2005, where there became this impetus to give everybody who participates in uh, kids sports, youth sports, whatever, a medal. Okay, and so no longer uh, was it you know um, most valuable player and so on. They just give everybody a medal. Everybody gets a medal, even the guy who only showed up to one or two practices and maybe only you know sat the bench and just played like a minute each game because he really wasn't practiced, really wasn't there. But they had to play him, so they did. So everybody gets the same medal. And then there's a lot of like backlash against that amongst, and I'm going to be honest with you, amongst people like me who feel like excellence deserves its own reward. That's justice, right? If someone does well, they should be rewarded. So if they are the, if they perform well and are the most valuable player, they should get it. And if they only, you know, show up to a few practices here or there and don't do what they are supposed to do, then they shouldn't get the same medal as somebody else who shows up and performs. And so that, that fits with my sense of justice. But I'm going to show you today uh, the problem with the metal system. And even though the world got there to the place of sharing the, giving the metal to everyone the wrong way, they got there the wrong way, not in a biblical way, not in a godly way, I'm going to show you how everyone getting a medal does have some merit and we should be a little careful uh, to, to blow off that system. Okay? All right, then there's the third thing. I want to talk to you briefly about the underdog. Okay? So I wrote this. There is an underdog. He fights for what he believes in. He has continued to stand up against a system he sees as unfair. 
He will never change, resisting to the very end against what he sees as an oppressive overlord, even until he is finally caught and will spend the remainder of his life in torment, but will never yield before then, despite the obvious fact that he cannot win. It's a little paragraph about the underdog. Sounds good, right? Almost kind of seems like how we sort of picture Christians a little bit. Um, it sounds like the kind of tenacity that humans value, the one who doesn't quit because they know they, what they think they know what the right is and the justice is and they just won't quit. In fact, uh, in some lesser way, many would choose to emulate that person that's described there, wouldn't they? They might be inspired to rebel against perceived injustice. They might be inspired to stand for their beliefs and to do so against all odds based on this account, this account alone. Is he not courageous according to this account? I'll read it again briefly. It says, There is an underdog. He fights for what he believes in. He has continued to stand up against a system he sees as unfair. He will never change, resisting to the very end against what he sees as an oppressive overlord, even until he is finally caught and will spend the remainder of his life in torment, but will never yield before then, despite the obvious fact that he cannot win. Almost sounds good. Is he not courageous according to this account? Now, what if I told you that that paragraph is about the devil? And I said it this way. The devil is an underdog. He fights for what he believes in, which is his right to kill, steal, and destroy, his rights to rule, and the tainted, wicked worship of the human race toward the false gods that he ordains. He has continued to stand up against the system he sees as unfair. Human beings being allowed access to God and the good things of life, a system that places him below God's human creation man. He will never change. He will be evil always and the father of lies. He will be resisting to the very end against what he sees as an oppressive overlord, God who is love, even until Satan is finally once and for all put down and will spend the remainder of his life in torment, but will never yield before then, devouring as many as he can, luring humans into his traps, and all this despite the obvious fact that he cannot win. I am an underdog. Amongst the human race and faced with opposition like demons in the world systems, I stand up for my belief and I stand up against a system warped by Satan's hatred of God and people's confused emulation of him. I will never change. I have been regenerated by the God of heaven and his Holy Spirit and if I change at all, it will be to be more like Jesus. I will resist even unto my death the tactics of Satan and my true enemies. This I will do knowing that if Jesus does not come again before my time, I will die for my Lord, but I will not spend eternity in torment. Rather, I will spend it with God in the place that he is preparing for me. This I will do, knowing despite any losses I may take, I cannot lose. I submit to you that the rebels of the world emulate Satan because they do not have Christians to emulate. They emulate Satan because the people who are in the kingdom of God who are receiving the promised kingdom of God are receiving the destination, the eternal destination, last forever in bliss, those people are not standing up as examples, as rebels against the world system, so that people who are in the world who feel inside themselves a need to rebel, rather than rebelling against Satan and the world system, which is what they should be doing, they rebel against God following the only example that they are given on a daily basis, which is the devil and the evil system that he has so aptly put in place. Oh yes, I know all creation glorifies God. I get that. But a simple message of, how, message of how good God is and that we should go to him compared to 
that every moment, every day of their family, friends, TV, social media, everywhere that they go, being pushed on them, that God is not good, that he is an oppressive overlord, and they should stand against him. And their need to rebel, which is created in them so that they will rebel against the world system and turn to God, their need to rebel is then harnessed to be that underdog more like the first chapter, the one that they think is awesome. But they're, un- they're rebelling for the wrong reason. Grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me then. Maybe a hoot, a holler, amen, as we go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is God's Word. It is an effective Word. You can know that for sure. Whether we are affected by it or not will really be up to us and our willingness. I'm going to read the chapter. Here we go. It's chapter 9. Here, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Okay, so through this point, he's basically telling them what's about to happen. I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, see the word today. Now, it wasn't literally today, right? In fact, they, they would not go in that day. It means in this era, at this time. It means you're, this is what's happening. This is the era in which you live. It has always been given to God's people to know the era in which they live. You should be realistic about the era in which you live. And I think we could say certain things. It is the era in which many things buy for our attention. Their era as w- in which we, from childhood on, are taught to not focus on one thing, but rather to live a balanced, rhythmic existence, absorbing and appreciating many things, and that, that by that means you will uh, be blessed. And all of that is wrong, by the way. Uh, there is one place that our focus belongs, and I think you know what it is, at least you should. Second thing in there, it says, A people great and tall, the sons of Anakim. This is a great enemy. And when faced with a great enemy and considering yourself an underdog, when you've heard the things like, who can stand before the sons of Anak, when you realize that the opposition that is before you, I'll just be plain with you, in my flesh as a normal human being, if Satan came in this room and said, hey, shut up, I would be scared. He's an eternal being with power granted him by God. I know he's only been granted that power, only so much power, right? He can't just kill me unless God says it's okay. He can't actually make me shut up unless God says that he is allowed to, and so on. But he's an eternal being, and he, he might come as whatever. He might look like whatever or whoever, uh, and, and I can admit, I think I would be scared. At the same time, I understand courage is when something inside you, powerful, motivating, pushes you past your fear. And I hope I would know that he who is in me is greater than he is in the world. But our enemies are large uh, or uh, obtrusive. They stick out. They make a big impact. Verse 3 says this, Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. I preached a sermon about a month ago now, uh, which was from uh, Deuteronomy earlier on, about how God is a consuming fire. And the phrase is in there, God is a consuming fire. And of course, then it's been requoted in the New Testament. But the fact is that God has a trait that he is a consuming fire. And when I preached that sermon, I took some heat and it was based, no, no pun intended there, although that is kind of funny, but I took some heat because people were telling me that I was preaching a message that, that nobody wants to hear. That nobody wants to hear that God is a consuming fire. Well, if that's true, that God is a consuming fire, then I submit to you that if no one wants to hear it, it's because they think they're about to be burned up. 
right? They're about to be affected by that. Um, but God is, whether you like to hear it or not, I'm here to say, if you're, if you're one of those people in this room, I apologize for stepping on your toes, but the bottom line is that God is a consuming fire. And here it says that he would go before him. I want to use an illustration at this point, kind of a little puzzle riddle that goes back a ways. And that illustration is, if you were on an on a, on a abandoned island, there's no one else on the island, right? And there's grass that's uh, about waist high on the island. If you were on that island and um, a fire broke out on one end of the island, it broke out on the west end of the island, and, it's, and the wind is blowing from the west to east pretty, pretty quickly, and it's pushing the fire along so that where you're standing on the island will eventually be consumed in fire. You will be, everything on the island has these weeds, and you could cut down some and make a hole for yourself, but the bottom line is you'd be fire all around you, and even, I mean, unless you got it all the way down to the dirt, you couldn't, I mean, you don't have a shovel, whatever. So the riddle goes like this, what do you do? How do you survive in that circumstance where you can't leave the island, let's say the water shark infested or it's a deep cliff or whatever, you can't leave the island, but how do you survive when that fire is being pushed along the island at, you know, seven mile per hour or whatever, uh, because whatever the wind pushes it, that's pretty much how fast a fire goes, generally speaking. It's running along the island, you're going to be burned alive, how do you survive it? And some of us know the answer, what's the answer? Nope. I mean, you could pray for a miracle, somebody else got it? Say it again? No, because it, it's the whole, I mean, you could try that, but the fire's covering the whole island. You wouldn't be able, there's nowhere you could run that wouldn't be on fire. Say it again? No, they're predetermined, can't go in the water, whether it's sharks or cliffs. You take your pick. Okay, maybe we haven't heard this one before. Good, that's fine. You'll like it. Okay? So what you do is you set what's called a backfire. You take some of the fire where it's burning. Okay. You take it over to the other side of the island, the last like third or whatever, and you set it on fire. As that happens, the fire that's pushing this way will burn up the middle space. The fire that's, going to, that's there will be pushed that way, will burn everything down that's in that remaining space. Then when the fire comes to you, you walk into the space that's now been burned down to nothing, and the fire comes to you and you're not burned. Because you're in the space that's already been burned down to nothing. It's called a backfire. Okay? So... God is a consuming fire is a very scary message. I totally get that, okay? And as I said, I took some heat from some people because that's a message nobody wants to hear. But I submit to you, the very same messages that we sometimes don't want to hear are the very same messages that we desperately need to hear and more than that, employ them in our lives. Because here we see the consuming fire of God going before them into the land of Israel. I get it. Sometimes you're under wrath because you sinned against God. In fact, the truth is we probably all have sins all the time and just God could just send us all to hell and be completely justified. But because of grace, he has saved us. Okay, So then you do things that you shouldn't do and God resists your course because it's not good for you and you feel the consuming fire of God. And you're like, oh man, I don't want to hear about that anymore because I keep screwing up and I keep feeling the wrath of God. And I get that. It's an unpleasant message. But here's the reality. When you are doing what it is that you are supposed to be doing or at least advancing along the course that God has for you, it is that very same consuming fire that is going before you to clear the path. Notice here in Deuteronomy what he says is, It is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. When God destroys the people in the promised land, it was God as a consuming fire that caused that to happen. It says, He will destroy them and He will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. We know in chapter 8 it said, not too quickly, so we don't want the, the wild animals of the land to, to 
become overpowering, but he said, quickly he will destroy them, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. In other words, God was not going in as a consuming fire because Israel was awesome or because they had matching uniforms or whatever, right? He was going in as a consuming fire because the people that he was consuming, the people he was wiping out to make room for his nation, deserved what they were about to get. They deserved it. He held, Egypt, he held Israel in Egypt for over 400 years, possibly 430 years, waiting for these people to come to full measure in their sin. Now they have, and God is going to send his people in. Notice the phrase also, dispossessing. You remember, even though we always get kind of cracked on in the apologetic circle because God ordained the wiping out of everybody that lived in the promised land to make room for his people, actually, people were allowed to flee. They could run away if they wanted but it was the people that stayed and fought that died. Right? God wiped out everybody that stayed and fought, including the man, woman, and child. Anybody that stayed and fought because basically they were hopeless because they didn't realize that God was doing what God was doing. There's no stopping that. So if they stayed, then they were destroyed. But if they ran, they were allowed to run. The Lord is dispossessing them before you. I submit to you that all of your dreams will be built out of the shatters and the tatters of someone else's dreams. This is not a new earth. It may be a new earth overall compared to what people think is an old earth, but the bottom line is your money, the, the, if you pull out the, the, the paper money that's in your pocket, it was not printed today. When you get new money from the bank and it looks like it was just printed, it wasn't printed today. It was printed a long time ago. It may have been in storage for a while, but the bottom line is multiple people have had it since before you had it. And it's not just money either. Your car right, was in the hands of someone else. Unless you bought it like mint stock new from the factory, it was in the hands of multiple people before it ever got to you. And in fact, pe more people profited by it in the process of getting it from where it was created to you than you'll ever know. Untold people. The bottom line is we are building all that we are building out of the tatters of all that went before us. And the creation is working against some people, but the bottom, but really God is dispossessing those who went before us to give us something awesome. If you have something awesome that God gave you, he gave it to you over top of the ruined hopes and dreams of others that went before you. Verse 5 says, It is not for your righteousness or for the uprighteousness uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord spoke to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we've got really essentially two factors. It's the not righteousness of the people in the land and the righteousness of God. And notice how when the righteousness of God meets the not righteous in the people of the land, what happens? The not righteous get eliminated or dispossessed, right? But God's righteousness remains. It's always that way. God's righteousness always remains. And so if you run up against God's righteousness, well, what's going to happen to you? The same thing. God is a consuming fire. But if you will ride the wave of God's righteousness, essentially, then God will go before you and do what it is that God wants to do. And he will make for you incredible things, rewarding you even in this lifetime. And I'm not, I'm not 
preaching a health and wealth gospel, but the bottom line is Jesus said they will, whoever gives, whoever leaves behind wife and home and blah, blah, blah for me will have that much more and more in this lifetime. And he added the phrase in this lifetime. And so the bottom line is as you walk the path of holiness toward heaven, God will pave the way before you. But what happens is you start to get some good stuff. This is a couple chapters back. And you start thinking, well, now I've got some good stuff and I've got to protect it. And you stop along the way in a rest area and start protecting your stuff. And you're not walking the path. A consuming fire goes on before you and then pretty soon it circles back and it destroys you too because you're more about the stuff that God gave you than the path that God had you on. Or you get into idolatry. You go a little ways along and things are going pretty well and over here is people want you to do this and you can just have sex a few more times a week if you do it with these temple prostitutes and so on. Or you can feel that serotonin and that uh, endorphins in your brain if you watch some more sports or if you, if you go to more concerts or if you eat better food or go out and let people serve you and pay 50 bucks a meal to let people serve you and you'll feel better better than if you made it yourself. And you believe all this idolatry, essentially, and then you're off the course again, and the consuming fire will circle back, and it'll deal with you. But that's the reality of what we're facing here. But if we continue on the road of holiness that God has put us on, that consuming fire goes before the believers. And it does not go before the believers because of the righteousness of the believers, but rather because of the righteousness of God. Second factor then is the oath that the Lord made. God will always keep his promises. Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you there to be with me. Period. End of story. That's a promise. You can take it to the eternal bank. That's what's going to happen. He's actively preparing a place for you, believer, right now in heaven. He's taking you there. If he's taking you there, why are you so, so concerned about what's going on here? Unless you're trying to make it about God and take everything that's under your control in the direction of the kingdom of God, then why are you so concerned? And that is exactly what Moses is calling us to, to make everything that we have control over about the kingdom of God. Verse 6, Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stubborn people. A stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. They were always doing it. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, which the Lord had made with you, then I remained on the mountain for 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. That's a long time to not eat or drink. 40 days and nights. Verse 10, And the Lord gave me the two tablets of the stone written by the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. So he put all that stuff on there. God did. God put it on there and gave it over to Moses. And verse 11 says, And it came about at the end of 40 days and nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down from here quickly, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image for themselves. The Lord spoke further to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, God said, let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you, he said to Moses, I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. 15 says, So I turned and came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I saw that you had indeed sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves a molten calf, 
You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. And I told, and I'm sorry, and I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands and smashed them before your eyes. I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and nights I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And I think it's interesting. That's 40 days plus 40 days. And even if he got a little break in the middle, he had 40 days plus 40 days, that's, that's something else. I mean, you could make a lot of theology out of that and say, well, it was 40 days learning the will of the Lord. Then the will of the Lord was broken. And then it was another 40 days repenting of the fact that, he, that the will of the Lord had been broken. Does that follow? For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was angry also enough with Aaron to destroy him. So I also prayed for Aaron at the same time. And I took your sinful thing, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that came down from the mountain. Verse 22. Again at Tabera and at Masa and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. Now, I, I submit to you, if we stop there for a second and we try to list our own list, my list of when I have provoked the Lord to wrath would probably be pretty long. It's more than I know, and it would probably take me to a pretty dark place if I thought about it long enough. Verse 23. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, that's where they stopped before they were going to go into the promised land, he said, go up and possess the land which I have given you. Then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You neither believed him nor listened to his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. Have, I'm going to ask you, have you been rebellious against the Lord from the day God invited you into the kingdom? Verse 25. So I fell down before the Lord the 40 days and nights which I did because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy thy people, even thine inheritance, whom thou hast redeemed through thy greatness, whom thou hast brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember thy servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at their wickedness or their sin. And so there's a whole sermon in there that we would beg God not to look at our stubbornness or our wickedness or our sin. And the difference between the three, stubbornness is when you keep not doing what you're supposed to do. Wickedness is when you keep intentionally doing what you're not supposed to do. And sin is when you either don't do what you're supposed to do or do what you're not supposed to do, generically speaking. And you could have a whole sermon right there. Verse 28, Otherwise the land from which thou didst bring us may say, so now he's talking about Egypt, right? Because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. So Moses made this argument to God. If you destroy them now, then people are going to think about you, that you were not able to do what you said you were going to do, and so you brought them out here and destroyed them rather than doing what you said you were going to do. It's an argument from God's righteousness, an argument from God's power. Verse 29, and we're almost done. Yet they are thy people, even thine inheritance, whom thou hast brought out by thy great power and thine outstretched arm. All right, so in this section of Scripture, we see several things. The first thing is the poison, the slow-acting poison that I warned you about. Has anybody figured out what it is? The slow-acting poison. 
The slow-acting poison, what, I war- what he's warning us about, what he is warning the Israelites about, what I'm now here, I think, to warn us about, is comparing oneself to others. See, they were thinking that they took the promised land, they were, that they were taking the promised land, that they were being led into the promised land because they were better than the people who lived in the promised land. They could say, well, we never sacrificed our children in the fire to the false god Molech. However, while Moses was up on the mountain and the fire was still there receiving the commands of God, they did take the gold and silver jewelry and make it into a calf, sat down to eat and got up to play, which means have an orgy, basically, have sex all over the place in honor of the false god that they had created for themselves. So are they really better? But that's not really the point, is it? The point is that there is a disease that human beings have not on the list of diseases. There is a psychological problem that human beings have. It's a natural outflow of the selfish nature. It's not on the list of insanities, although it's getting close when you think about this, what they call social media uh, dysphoria, or basically you watch, you watch social media and you think that's real life and you start feeling all depressed inside yourself and they think that might actually be an insanity that people are creating that's new, relatively new. In our selfish nature, we have a tendency to exercise our senses and perceive when we see the image of God walking around in flesh and we look at that other person and just as we are warned to not to covet right, or to love our neighbor as ourselves, just as we are warned in the Ten Commandments on how to relate to one another, at the same time we look at them and we think, just as God was so gracious to us to share in the inspirational moment when we prayed and asked him to do so, we think, oh man, They've got it all together. They've got what they need. How often I have heard someone say to me, and I'm not chastising anybody, I'm hurting, or I'm going, I'm in a dark place, or I'm sad today, or I'm depressed, or I'm broken, or I'm really struggling, or this has been really hard, or I'm mourning the loss of my loved one, and they are literally being crushed under the weight of a burden of internal stress. And their core is about to crumble. And they've become aware of it in their present circumstances. That my core is about to crumble. But here is the reality of life. Are you ready? I'm going to tell you the reality of life right now. Everyone's core is about to crumble. (laughs) That's it. Under death, the wages of sin is death means that you'll be crushed away from having a proper relationship with God. right? And the wages of sin is death doesn't end when somebody gets saved. It literally says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Bless you. So it doesn't end. So you are in sin. You sin against God. And the wages of that sin is a separation between you and the person you were created to have relationship with and the power source. Uh, I read an article, don't know if it's true or not, I'm not trying to preach the news, but an article that said that California was telling people who own electric cars not to charge their electric cars, which is super ironic because they were the first country, first uh, state to pass laws saying that eventually everyone has to have electric cars. So it was kind of ironic, but I didn't read the article, so I don't know the truth of it, so don't hold me on that. But when I thought about that, I thought, this is what we do. We go to the ends of the earth to try to make somebody better, teach, preach, tell them what they need to do, while all the while, we ourselves are just about to crumble. And what we do is then make that person, if they should even put in a serious effort, twice as much a son of hell as we are. There is only one way to be saved, and that is to come into a proper relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's what it means when Jesus said, you can do nothing except that which you go through me. Unless you completely depend on Jesus, again today, you are on the verge of crumbling. You say, no, 
No, that's not true. I feel okay. I'm good. What if later today, somebody that you love or yourself or whatever suffers a terrible tragedy? What if our church, God forbid, loses somebody integral to who we are today? Anybody that's in this room, if anybody in this room, I'm, I'm being transparent right now, if anybody that I see before me, and probably most people that are joining us online right now, dies today, I'm going to be hit. It's going to hurt me. It's going to strike through to my heart in a way that I cannot describe to you. And you've probably been there. Because you've been hit at some point in time and felt like, oh, I, I can't take this. And I'm submitting that probably if you're here today and hearing this gospel be preached, then it was then you now realize that it was God who shored up your infrastructure, who gave you the strength and the power to continue under the worst of things. I, so many times in my life I've faced what I would never want to face, and then God from the inside. It wasn't like there was anything out. It wasn't like somebody called me on the phone and said, hey, you're going to be okay. Because frankly, I wouldn't have believed him. Somebody calls me and says I'm going to be okay when I'm really hurting. I don't believe them. Do you? Really? Who would it be? Would it be me? Would, it be, would you believe me if I called you when you were in the worst moment of your life and said, hey, you're going to be okay? No, it takes something more than that, doesn't it? It takes a, a, a spiritual, emotional lifting up. That, now, sometimes God uses somebody to do that. Don't get me wrong. There is a spiritual gift of encouragement and they can bring it, but even the spiritual gift of encouragement taps into the strength that is God. Otherwise, it's nothing, right? You get a phone call from somebody you haven't heard from in 10 years and says, hey, you're going to be okay. And you're like, yeah, I know you. I trust you. I'm going to believe what you say, right? If you do that, it is sorcery at best and idolatry probably. It's nothing to do with God. The bottom line is we are all at all times on the verge of collapsing down. We may get to heaven and find out that when you look into outer space and they see those black holes where there are no stars and no light and they know the gravity there must be huge and they occasionally see uh, like a star or a planet or something that might be consumed, sucked in and just gone, whether it goes to another galaxy or whatever, whatever you believe is true. Bottom line, you see that, that, that black hole is probably the purest representation of the human soul in all creation. We are vacuous. And when the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in us, He is the only one who can fill that space and shore up its walls and make it solid and to last. And so when we look at others, we go, oh, they got a new car, they got new shoes, they got new pants, they got a new, new storyline, there's something cool going on. Oh, look how cute she is doing the fancy dance. Right? Whatever. Watch that 17 times. And we're watching this crap or we're watching TV, right? That's my favorite actor. Every movie he's ever been in. I've always loved every movie he's ever been in. Oh, this one's not that great. But I love him and so I must love this movie. Hey, or look at my new car that I've got. Now I'm going to be okay and I'm not going to have to worry about my transportation. And we get, while all of that is going on, it's not affecting your soul in any positive way. We are all on the verge of crash. It was a, there was a girl that was that pizza that I was witnessing to. I say a girl, but she was like in her uh, mid-20s and she was the Pizza Hut store manager, just got promoted. And I had witnessed to her at a management meeting about like uh, a month before the incident I'm about to describe. And I told her about Jesus, I told her about God, and I asked her to be saved and she had declined. And I was terrified the whole time. I was terrified the whole time I was talking to her. And she's like, no, I mean, I'll think about it, I'll pray about it, whatever, and she let it go. And about a month later, she got her, her promotion came through officially and she got her salary increase and everything. And the day she got her salary increase, she went out and bought a motorcycle. And I heard she bought a motorcycle on the phone. So we said she bought a nice new motorcycle. Like a, this is like in 2000 or something. She bought like a 2000 uh, or a 1999 motorcycle. It was like eight grand, whatever. She financed it. And I heard about it like almost immediately. Because, you know, I've, I'm a motorcycle driver. 
In my core, I enjoy driving motorcycles, but I don't worship motorcycles or idolize them, but God makes me like think, and, and I'm not tempted to get on my phone. Uh, I have, I will admit, read, uh, read the Ten Commandments while driving my motorcycle. I put them on the inside of my windshield and wrote, read them over and over as I was driving down the road. And the books of the Bible, memorizing the books of the Bible, put that on the inside of my windshield. Whenever I was nothing going on, I was doing it. So I have read while I was driving my motorcycle and while I'm driving my car, but the bottom line is, while I'm on my motorcycle, I feel like, I can focus. I can think about God. I don't have a motorcycle currently because motorcycles are expensive. And I didn't, and at that time, I did have a motorcycle, but it was broke down. It was like a $1,200 repair and I didn't have the money to replace it. So when I heard that she bought a motorcycle, I'm like, holy crud, she has the life I want. I'm a follower of Jesus trying to tell her to get saved. And she, and that's what I thought as a young Christian. I thought, oh man, she has the life I want. She just got a new motorcycle. Two hours later, I got the phone call that she drove the motorcycle off the lot on her temps permit, never having driven a motorcycle before, lost control of it two blocks away from the lot, hit the curb, flipped the bike, totaled the bike, eight grand bike, and was in the hospital. Took her three months to learn to walk again. She lost her job at Pizza Hut because she didn't tell them anything of what was going on or she didn't keep them in the loop after that. So she was no longer a store manager, no longer had a motorcycle, and went through terrible agony and pain. And when I heard that she had, it didn't even strike me that I had said, she has the life that I want. It didn't even strike me that I had done that. I just immediately went to prayer for her. Prayed that God would miraculously heal her. And then later it came back to me and I was shamed by the fact that that initial report that she had the motorcycle that I wished I had, had somehow affected me. Listen to me. Your soul is going to remain your soul. And there's only one person that can deal with your soul and your heart and regenerate it. And that is God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ comparing yourself to others in whatever condition. They're cuter than me. They're fatter than me. They're, they're, they're thinner than me. They're smarter than me. They're faster than me. They're stronger than me. They're weaker than me. Listen, most people are physically stronger than I am. It's a fact. Yet, I do more physical labor than 80% of the people I know. I literally moved last year, wait for it, 100,000 pounds of groceries. Myself! And Jamie moved almost that much. And by the time Tommy's done this year, he will have moved that much. Now, Tommy's pretty strong, so he's not the best illustration. But Jamie and I are physically weaker than most people we know. And yet we move tens of thousands of pounds of groceries every year while most people clickety-clacky the keyboard or talk on the phone or drive their car for a living or whatever. Your physical strength is literally irrelevant. What you look like is irrelevant. You will die, go to heaven, the bottom line is we're all suffering under the effects of creation. Our bodies are all messed up. Now, if you are willingly not taking care of your body and taking it to a place that it should not go, then you have missed that command where the Lord says, this is a physical temple in which the Holy Spirit and your spirit dwell, and you have a responsibility to take care of it. I am not weaker than most people for lack of trying. I have literally done curls with weights to the tune of like 50,000 curls. Now, I can show you my bicep, and it looks pretty good, but compared to Michael's, it's nothing. It's literally like a twig, or to Tony, or Ron, or we got we got a couch out of a truck last out of a van last night, and I I, I could barely lift it like an inch, and Archie just grabbed the end and hauled it out because he's twice as strong as I am. I get that. Am I yearning for his strength? No. Here's what I know: physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually, there is absolutely no better person to be in the place that you are in to have a relationship with God the Father. He has orchestrated your life and the boundaries of your life. Stop pitting yourself over your condition or your health concerns or say, well, somebody else has got and just do what it is that God would have you to do. I run on ahead of myself, but the bottom line is 
Comparing yourself to others is going to lead you to either a lack of repentance because you say, I'm already better, I'm already doing a good job, whatever this little problem that I have, it's okay, I'm doing that. At least I'm not doing that anymore, whatever. Comparing yourself to others, right? Or maybe you say pridefully, I'm angry because they, I'm doing the best I can and yeah, they may be doing better than me, but why has God given them so much more stuff than he's given me or so much more emotional or they, he can preach like I wish I could preach or he can talk like I wish I could talk or he's bold like I wish I would be bold or whatever. Or it leads you to a lack of trusting God. The truth is that we are clay in the hands of the potter. If you would just be faithful and follow God, then you are a clay in the hands of the potter. And if you're messed up, God will fix you. He'll take you back, start you over, and recreate you. Stop with the excuses and say, I can't do what somebody else does, whatever. You can literally do anything that God sets before you to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And yes, I understand that's in a certain context. But the bottom line is, if God sets it before you and empowers you to do it, you can do it. The trouble is that as clay in the hands of the potter, we look at the pots already made and say, well, I'll never be that good of a pot. Or maybe God's making us out to be like a bedpan pot and somebody else is a beautiful whole flowers pot. And are like, well, the beautiful whole flowers pot is so awesome, I'll never be able to be like that pot. I'm really angry that I'm a whole poop pot. Right? I don't want to be a whole poop pot. I want to be a whole flowers pot. Who are you to tell the potter how he should make the clay? Who are you to tell what God wants to do through you? He literally cannot, wait for it, what God wants to do through you, he cannot do through anyone else. Everyone is unique, a unique creation with unique gifts. Stop trying to follow somebody else's path. All our paths converge together in honoring God and walking the kingdom of God and following his commands. I get that. But the bottom line is you have to get real with yourself and say, am I willing to be the clay so the potter can make me into whatever he wants me to do? What if he makes me into a bedpan? What if he makes me into a doorstop? Am I cool with that? Well, better is one day in his course than a thousands elsewhere. And we can and will be walk in the way of holiness, living our lives for God. We'll be thinking about His Word. We'll be meditating on His Word. And along will come someone else. And they will say something or do something that will get your attention. And while you're supposed to think about it in a godly way, you're supposed to ask God, what do, what do I think of that? You're supposed to let what you experience, everything your five senses experience, affect you internally only in that it is filtered through your God filter. That's how it's supposed to be done. Instead, you will think about yourself compared to someone else. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you want to flip there in your Bibles, you're welcome to do so. I'm going kind of fast because I still got two points even though they're shorter. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 2, 7, 12, and 18, and by that you will get the gist of the entire chapter almost. Chapter 10, verse 2, 2 Corinthians says, I ask that when I am present, I may be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. Some, that is, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. There were people that looked at Paul and his companions and said they're not walking after Jesus, they're walking according to the flesh. There were people that were comparing themselves saying, well, we're followers of Jesus, but that Paul over there, he's not quite doing the right things. Down to verse 7. If you are looking at things as the, I'm sorry, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, 
so also are we. Be careful when you look at others and judge their actions or judge them or think, think, well, they've got it all together or they're falling apart, either one, because it's not your place to do that. It's your place to be working between you and God, to be fixing you and letting God do the work in you that he wants to do. Verse 12 then says, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. What you're essentially doing is, when you look at somebody else and compare yourself to them, you're measuring yourself. Just the same as you're measuring yourself in comparison to them, you're measuring them in comparison to you. And sometimes you'll say they're better in that thing, and sometimes you'll say you're better in that thing. But you really need to not be doing that at all. Paul, who preached the gospel and was the first one to even go to Corinth with the gospel of Jesus Christ, would not even dare to compare himself, though... At one point in time, somebody might be miraculously healed. He brought a guy back to life who fell asleep while he was preaching. All these crazy things that Paul did. And he would not compare himself with the young Christians in Corinth. I'm not comparing myself with you. I yearn that you would strive forward and try to be what God would want you to be. But I'm not comparing myself with you at any point in time. If I see something in you that I don't think is godly, I hope I'll have the courage to bring it to you. But when I think about having the courage to bring it to you, I understand it's my own weakness that would keep me from doing so. Not you, not yours, nothing about you. Paul said, I don't even compare myself with those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Stop it! God loves you and is trying to make you into something awesome that will glorify Him. And if you're busy looking at what others are and what others are doing, you're just messing all that up. Verse 18, last one in the chapter. He says this, Because not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commands. It doesn't matter. Go ahead, put it on Facebook that you're proud of yourself or proud of your kid or proud of your school or proud of whatever you, all that. Put, go ahead, you know, tell everybody about what's going on in your life. You can do all that, but make sure that you do more telling everybody about who's the source of all your contentment, who's the source of all your power, who's the source of all your holiness, who's the source of all your righteousness, who it is that will take you through to eternity, who it is that is preparing a place for you. Oh, maybe if you get around to talking about God the way you're supposed to, you won't have quite as much time to talk about everything else. For it is not he who commends himself who is approved, but whom the Lord commends. The second thing I want you to see in this passage of Scripture then, that it is not because of our righteousness that we are being given the promised destination. Indeed, it is because of his righteousness. Now, it's interesting because the Israelites were being given a picture of what it's like for us knowing Jesus firsthand. You know that it is not your righteousness, right? I mean, you should. You're not going to go to heaven because of your righteousness. Jesus does not make you righteous when you get saved. That's not how it works. If you think that's how it works, you're confused. That's a process of sanctification. It happens long term over your whole life. What he actually does is he imposes his righteousness on you. So now when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. That is if you're saved. So if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believe that God raised him from the dead, called out to him to save you, then God at that moment in time allowed Jesus to superimpose his righteousness upon you and continues to this day. Every time you mar it, mess it up, go somewhere you shouldn't go, do something you shouldn't do, he continues to stand at the right hand of the Father and to impress God with his own righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. Not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. And say, God, please forgive him. Overlook it. 
We can just hear the words of Moses as Moses is pleading with God not to destroy them. But Jesus is doing the same thing for you and for me. That is, if you're saved, he's doing the same thing for you and for me every day. So the next time you sin, understand that immediately Jesus has to turn to God or God to Jesus or they look at each other or they just talk without looking at each other, whatever. And Jesus says, it's okay, God. It's covered by the blood I shed on the cross, by the crushing sacrifice that was made. It's covered. So we still got him. We still got him. If ever they had you, They'll still have you because Jesus will eternally be standing there imposing his righteousness over top of yours. Now it is ultimately the goal that your righteousness will become a little bit more like Jesus' righteousness all the time, never fully arriving until that moment which come into God's presence, but always getting a little bit more. We don't, we're not sinless, but as we grow, we sin a little less. And that's it. It is not because of our righteousness that we are being given the promised destination. We receive because of his righteousness, because he is keeping his promise. But then you want to go on to say, don't you? And because of his consuming fire toward others. That's what we want to say. But that has nothing to do with salvation. That has nothing to do with why we'll get to heaven. What happens to other people literally has nothing to do with why, when we get to heaven. Where did God's consuming fire play out? Where did that happen at? Where did God's consuming fire destroy or crush someone so that we could have the course that we have into eternity. On the cross. God's consuming fire crushed Jesus on the cross so that we could have this course into eternity that we could go to heaven. That's the math of it. He doesn't have to crush your neighbor to do that anymore. He doesn't have to crush the mayor, the, the crooked politicians, or the child molesters. He doesn't have to crush any of them for you to be able to have the eternal path between where you currently are and heaven. He doesn't have to do that because he crushed Jesus to pay the price for my sin, to pay the price for your sin. His consuming fire consumed his son. So it's not based on our righteousness that we're entering in, but based on his righteousness opposed upon us and, wait for it, his love for other people. You're like, well, now how do we see that in Deuteronomy 9? Well, we may see it elsewhere in Scripture. How do we see it in Deuteronomy 9? Why? Did Mo what standard did Moses use or what argument did he make with God that God would not wipe out the Israelites. Because if the Israelites don't arrive in the promised land that God is taking them to, who does that reflect upon? Who was not able, by an outside standard, to do what they said they were going to do? Well, if you, it's not people, because people are always, under one circumstance or another, not able to do what they said they would do. They make a plan, they commit themselves, they try really hard maybe even, they go out of the way, block out the time, everything like that, but still fail because it was outside their control. So it wasn't going to be the Israelites that they were all going to be laughing at and mocking, it was going to be God. You see, the Israelites were God's plan to bring every man in the world to heaven and wait for it. You are God's now plan to bring every man in the world to heaven. Every man and woman in the world can go to heaven through the church of Jesus Christ that lives in our day. If they would accept Christ, if they would believe in him as Lord and Savior, and that God raised him from the dead and call out to be saved, they would receive salvation. And I submit to you, many of them are looking for it and not finding it because they are wrapped up in this long-lasting poison of comparing to others. They look at the church and say, well, I'm more honest than that church is anyway. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. That's the poison. And it's killing them. It's a particular brand of sin that persists. But God is guaranteeing our walk on the highway of holiness even when we sin against him because of his righteousness imposed upon us through his son Jesus Christ and because of his love for other people. And because of his love for other people. 
that we might take Jesus' righteousness into the world and that people might be saved. And then the third thing to see in the text, which is blaringly obvious, but I think just sometimes needs to be said, and that is he is able. Remember that from the moment they left Egypt, God could have snapped his God fingers and they could have been in the promised land. Remember that from the moment they left Egypt, he could have snapped his fingers and all the people that lived in the promised land could have been wiped out and the animals not gotten out of control by eating them because he could have made them gone. God has the power because God created everything. So if God had the power to teleport them out of Egypt into the promised land and wipe everybody out that was in their way instantaneously, what was the journey all about? It was all about the fact that it's not about us. And they needed to learn that. And we actually read that in chapter 8 of last week. He said, I brought you through all of that and all that stubbornness and all that foolishness to test your heart and see if you were willing and able. And up on Mount Horeb or at the base of Mount Horeb, they said again that they were not willing and able. And yet Moses said, but please don't destroy them because the people will say, you are not willing and able. And this is the reality. We are living in a day where if we as a church do not step up, if we as a church do not shine, if we don't give more than we've ever given, if we don't serve more than we've ever served, if we don't be outspoken more than we've ever been outspoken, the church will be dying. And they're saying it's already happening. It's happening in parts of the world. In some parts of the world, the church is growing like crazy. But by and large, the church will be dying. And it won't be the church that people will be mocking. It'll be God. He'll say, yeah, see, they claim the name of Jesus, but God wasn't able to do what it was. When churches' doors close, it is not because God is weak or not able. When buildings stop being meeting places for churches, pastors stop preaching the word, or church staff or deacons get into an affair with the church secretary or children's teacher, when, when all of that evil happens, or a pastor who preached the truth of God stands up after 10 years and declares himself to be a practicing homosexual, when all of that stuff happens, it is not because God is not able. God is able. But along the journey of people discovering just exactly how able God is, they encountered His wrath by perhaps consuming this long-lasting poison. That pastor who stood up for 10 years and preached the gospel and said, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you need to be too and his church was growing and people were getting saved. And people were like, man, our pastor's all that. Our pastor's so awesome. We love our pastor. He's big. Look how he grew our church from 100 people to 3,000 people or whatever. And then one day he gets up and all that while he's saying, I'm better than all these 3,000 people. I'm preaching the word. All these 3,000 people are looking to me. And then he gets up and he said, and I'm practicing homosexual and I am not going to repent and I'm going to keep coming up here every Sunday and I'm going to keep preaching and teaching because this is the way I think it is. Even though for 10 years he taught what the word said, that day, so, and you know what happened? The next week, guess how many people come to church? 1,300, not 3,000. The next week, 300. The next week, 150. Because they knew that they had bought into something that was a lie. I am no better than anybody. Josh, you're no better than anybody. Tony, you're no better than anybody. Anybody. Lynn, no better than anybody. Right? We're not. Saved or not, it doesn't matter. At best, we become a servant of the servant king, delivering the truth. And when we do that, he is able. And when we don't do that, watch out, because he is able. 
And somebody else later on down the road will come and they will build their life out of the remnants of your crushed dreams because you didn't do what it was that God called you to. He is able. Trust Him. Stop thinking it's going to take this or that or whatever and commend your whole life and all your variables into His hands. He is able. If a bullet should enter your brain and you should die, He is able to take you to heaven. And in that moment, you'll sure be hoping that's so, won't you? But right now, you're like, ah, I'm not worried about that because there's no bullet. He is able. Get out of bed in the morning and remind yourself that He is able. And stop comparing yourself to others. And if you look at yourself in light of Jesus, right? That's what 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, that we are focused on the image of God in Him. And by focusing on the image of God in Him, being transformed daily a little bit, a little bit into the image of God that we see in Him. So focus on Jesus. And if you're not satisfied with who you are compared to Jesus, repent and turn to the Lord. And by the way, you should not be satisfied with who you are compared to Jesus because compared to Jesus, you're just a piece of dirt with a little bit of inspiration. And then when you're saved, it's His righteousness written on that tablet of God's creation. Not your righteousness. The Gospel is the unveiling of the meeting point of God's power and His righteousness and His love. I want you to think about three lines. Very bold, bright, glowing lines in the sky. And they're running all over the place. And finally, they all meet... The power of God. The power of God. The love of God. And the righteousness of God. And they all meet in one place. And now you tell me what you see there. When the power of God and the righteousness of God and the love of God all meet in one place, what do you see there? Do you see Jesus on the cross? Because when those three lines met, that was the only way to satisfy the power and the righteousness and the love of God, that was the only way. Or if you're saved, do you see the empty tomb? Jesus risen? Or do you see the gates of heaven? And that sick man, Lazarus, who for, Lazarus for his whole life sat at the gates begging, sickly, usually not, not having enough to eat, but there in eternity forever comforted. Never yearning for anything ever again. Do you see that? His power, His righteousness, and His love. The gospel is the unveiling of the meeting point of all of those things. And that brings us to our conclusion because there is an antidote. The antidote for this sickly poison, slow-acting, gouge God's greatness out of your life over the longest possible period of time Is the kingdom of God at work in you? The kingdom of God on earth is that place at which God's motivations and His power connect. Do you love God? Do you believe in God? Have you met God through His Son, Jesus Christ? And believe He is able and do what He would have you to do. And thereby be in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has its own antibodies because I can't know whether you're saved and you can't know whether I'm saved. So I can't look at Tommy, even though, realistically, I might say that Tommy is more handsome than I am. He's stronger than I am. He's surely faster than I am. 
He's more intelligent in certain things like electronics. He can solder circuit boards, which I can't do. Uh, he's great with little children. I might, I might look at all of those things and I might th- say that he is better than me. All this, but here's what I can't do. I can't look at Tommy and say for sure he's going to heaven. Nor can I look at anyone else in this room. doesn't matter what you've told me. I cannot look at you and say for sure I know that you're going to heaven. I cannot judge your salvation. And because of that, it rules out my appreciating anything that you have or coveting anything that you have that makes you better than me. And I could go around the room and say, this makes you better than me, this makes you better than me, this makes you better than me, this makes you worse than me, this makes you worse than me, this makes you worse than me. And I could balance it out and ultimately say, well, I think Ron is better off than Dan is. RJ is worse off than Dan is. Sierra is better off than Dan is. I could go around the room and I could do that. But because I can't know whether you're saved or not, the kingdom of God at work in me, the Holy Spirit of God testifying with my spirit that I know where I'm going when I die, that I'm living as best I can on the road of holiness for as long as I can while I live here on this earth. I'm walking that path because I know that that's what I'm trying to do. There is no comparing me with anybody else. Because for all I know, very realistically speaking, for all I know, I might be the only person in this room that's actually saved. And for all you know, you might be the only person in this room that's actually saved. You say, no, I'm sure Pastor Dan's saved. I, commit to you, I, I submit to you that you need to repent and turn to God because the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. And that means whether you judge me well or judge me poorly, either way, you're doing what God says you must not do. And it will not be he who cries out, Lord, Lord, necessarily who will enter into the kingdom of heaven when the time comes. But he who follows God, he who is saved through Jesus Christ, God's own son, and receives a righteousness that is not his own. Be careful that you don't automatically set up something that will cause others to compare themselves to you. When you say sometime, for example, and I'm not saying you can't talk, talk and say what God wants you to say, but when you say sometime that I am so well off, you know that there are going to be others who are going to go, well, yeah... I'm not that well off. You say to others, I am so poorly off, things are so bad. There are going to be others when you say that that are going to say, well, I, I must be doing much better. And if, they lost and think they're, if they're lost and think they're doing much better, they're not because they're going to hell. And if they're saved and think they're doing much worse, then that leads to a lack of trust in God. They need to repent. The kingdom of God has a built-in inoculation against comparing ourselves with others in that we can truly only know if the Holy Spirit is in us testifying that we're saved. And as soon as you go, well, I'm pretty sure he's saved and look at how awesome he is or look at how pretty she is. As soon as you do that, you're crossing into that zone of consuming little bits of that poison on a daily basis. There is a practice, uh, in fact, one of my favorite lines of all time from a movie, and I'm closing here in a second, uh, is, is from Princess Bride. And some of you will go, I know that movie. Uh, and there are lots of good lines for that movie. And there's a movie where he's in an uh, intelligence uh, battle with, a duel, essentially, with uh, Vincini, uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts is, and they're supposed to guess whether the, the poison is in which cup. And he does this thing, and he sets it down, and he goes, ha, 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 very funny. Ultimately, he says he wins, and then Vincini drank from his cup and he dies. And, and the Dread Pirate Robert says, Well, I've spent the last few years building up an immunity to iocane powder. And so they were, the poison was in both cups. 
And not that Vinzini couldn't have potentially figured that out and refused to drink, but the bottom line is that's a fictitious thing. Building up immunity, poison to immunity, immunity to poisons in your body is almost impossible. There, there are lots of different kinds of poisons. All the metal-based poisons, they actually build up a little bit, a little bit, right? And so if you would consume the tiniest microgram of that poison today and then again in a month and again in a month, hoping to eventually build up immunity, what will actually happen is once you build up enough of it, you'll die. <laughs> your body starts to shut down. So when you get to 1,000 grains, for example, you just you, your liver croaks out and you start having organ failure and you die. Right? So you can't do it on those kinds of poisons. You know about snake poison, right? And so there have been a lot of people that over the years believe that you could actually um, get immunity to certain snake poisons by taking a little bit, little bit over a long period of time. And they figured out how it works. The liver produces this chemical that allows you to metabolize the poison and you don't die from it uh, if you only have it in very small doses. And these are animals that have natural immunities and they thought they could replicate it. And there's this guy who goes and gets his blood drawn in Greenland every year because he did, he's done this for like 30 years, injected himself with little bits of snake poison. And so far what they've determined is that he's not immune to snake poison at all. So you really can't do that either. Plant-based poisons pretty much produce a certain chemical in your liver, and over a period of time, you, uh, if you produce too much of the chemical, if you need to produce too much of the chemical, you don't have it, then your body metabolizes the poisons into your fat cells or stores them wherever it possibly can to try to keep you alive. But when there's too much of it, or one day you're walking down the street, and you worked out a little bit, and your body starts to burn off some of the fat, it goes to your liver, your liver's not prepared, you croak. There's really no becoming immune to poisons. There's some very limited success that people have had, but you can't take a little bit, little bit, little bit of a poison. And I submit to you, why am I talking about this? Because that's exactly what people are doing today. They're taking a little bit of comparing themselves, a little bit here, a little bit there. They're like, well, no big deal. You know, I compare myself to that person, but I'm not really letting it affect me and so on. Like a little bit of comparing myself, a little bit more, a little bit more. And in doing all that, they think that they're building up an immunity because they're realizing that that person is trying to make them feel small, but they're not going to let that happen. They're realizing that that person's trying to make them big, but they're not going to let that happen. They're going to give glory to God. I submit to you that giving glory to God might be a good way to go, but here's what's not a good way to go. Don't ever, 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 let's go on until God, until Jesus comes again, compare yourself with someone else. It's a poison. You'll never become immune to it. You will eventually destroy your walk with God Maybe yourself. And if that is so, and I believe it is, then it's a sin against God, which means it will also destroy your relationship with God because the wages of sin is death. I mentioned to you at the beginning three things, and I've covered one of them. The, other, the next one was the medals that are given to children. Um, so here's the thing. I, I learned a long time ago uh, when I was a kid, we used to get desserts for, if we did well in school, my mom would give us desserts, or she'd take us out for ice cream and things like that. Ever happened to you? And I learned from uh, my psychology classes and so on that that is the way to make your children have difficulty dealing with, when they get grow up, eating habits. Because you say to your child, also by the way, forcing your child to eat everything on their plate also screw up their eating habits. Forcing their, or allowing your child not to try new foods that they don't like also screw up their eating habits. Lots of ways you can screw up your child's eating habits. But one of them is, so now you think, every time I'm down, I'm hurting, I'm, I'm sad, I'm going to go get some ice cream because I'll feel better. Right? So you screwed up your psychology that way. 
Now, obviously it's all in the hands of the Lord and you can say, well, I'm not going to worry about that. God's going to take care of it. Rewarding children for their good behavior is dangerous in a sense that they will think later if they do good behavior, they deserve a reward. And if they don't get a reward, then they'll be irritated about the reward. They didn't get a reward, right? So if you try really hard on your sports team, really, really hard on your sports team, and you do really, really well, and at the end of the year, you don't get a medal for MVP or most improved or anything like that, you get upset. If you get the same medal that everybody else got, that's no better because everybody got a medal, right? The bottom line is, should we give medals to sports teams? Probably because we should encourage good behavior. But we as parents have a responsibility to teach our children it's not relative to what others did. When we say most valuable player, for example, we're saying you were the most valuable player over top of the other nine kids on the team. We're teaching them to value themselves responding to what they see in others. We're literally teaching them to compare themselves to others. Sporting events. My baseball team goes out, plays against another baseball team that my kids are on. At the end, the score tells which team was better. Team sporting events are awesome. They teach teamwork. They're actually perfect for this because does the 11-10 score at the end of a baseball game say that one pitcher was better than the other? It does not. Does it say that one right fielder was better than the other team's right fielder? It does not. Okay. However, if every member of that, of that team gives their extreme best effort and does what they're supposed to do, yet they lose to this other team who did the same thing, then you can reasonably say that the team that won is better than the team that didn't. But maybe it was simply in their teamwork or in their coaching or in their planning or in their playbook or pure luck. Time and chance happens to all man, all men. It is the responsibility of every person to be the best that they possibly can be, and we are being crushed under that burden if we're trying to do it outside Jesus Christ. So sporting events are a great place to help people remember. It is not about how well you did it in response to how well somebody else did it. It's about who you're becoming. What are you doing? Are you following, in, in our case, are you following Jesus and becoming the person that God would have you to be or not? If you're playing sports or if you're playing games or if you're watching TV and it is not about you following the highway of holiness or going to heaven when you die, you following Jesus and letting his righteousness be imputed to you and so on. If it's not about that, then you shouldn't be doing it. So if you have a kid who's playing sports or you have a kid who's watching or playing video games or you have a kid who's watching something on their phone and you realize that it is causing them to compare themselves to somebody else, it's time to step up, mom or dad or aunt or uncle or friend or brother or sister in Christ and say, look, this is not so that you can compare yourself to somebody else because it's really about who are you in Christ. Let's not train our children. As I said, the world got there the complete wrong way by giving everybody a medal saying nobody is better than anybody else. It's a complete wrong way. It's a, it's a PC maneuver, political, politically correct maneuver, but better that then we go to one kid and say, well, you're better than this other kid. And we go to this other kid over here and say, well, you're not as good as this kid. He did more for the team. If there's no, did everybody do their best? Are you doing your best? Try your hardest. Do what you can. Do what it is that you're supposed to do. 
And the last illustration was of the underdog, and I wrote this at the end, I am an underdog amongst the human race and faced with oppositions like demons in the world system. I stand up for my beliefs and I stand up against the system warped by Satan's hatred of God and people's confused emulation of him. I will never change. I have been regenerated by the God of heaven and his Holy Spirit. And if I change at all, it will be to be more like Jesus. I will resist even unto my death the tactics of Satan and my true enemies. This I will do knowing that if Jesus does not come again before my time, I will die for my Lord, but I will not spend eternity in torment. Rather, I will spend it with God in the place that he is preparing for me. This I will do knowing despite any losses I may take, I cannot lose. I want you to say to yourself right now, this moment, Christian, I cannot lose. I'm going to have the praise team come forward and lead us in a closing hymn at this point in time. And I'm asking you to think about you and about your relationship with God. You say, well, God is holy. Jesus is just and loving and kind. And I'm not like them. Yeah, kind of the point. We're not. We're trying to be, but we're not. But if you've been comparing yourself to other human beings, even other human beings that profess to be saved, or other human beings that preach the word, or whatever, if you've been comparing yourself to others, I would ask you to repent and turn to God. And let God inform you about you, because apparently you don't know you. There's a you that you don't know, and only God knows. Let God inform you about you. Don't try to tell God, God, I'm not as strong. God, I'm overweight. God, I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too poor. I'm too rich. I'm too... My health concerns get in the way. Don't do that. Just say to God, God, here I am. Take this me and make of it what it can be. God give you the medal for first place in your life after Jesus. You stand with me and sing this song and if the Lord has spoken to your heart, will you respond and and just make whatever decision it is God's called on you to make. And say, okay, God, I get it. I'm hearing you. I'm surrendering to you. I'm following you. And if anybody in this room needs me to say, but if anybody in this room needs me to say something, Jesus will sit around. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Why would your eyes be on the people of the world if you decided to follow Jesus? Decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. What if they won't come because they're not following him? Will you still follow? I still will follow. What if their sufferings are weighing them down? Will you still follow?
as I was just singing that last verse, I felt like the Spirit impressed upon me this image. I'm going to share it with you. You can vet it with Scripture and all that. We can do all that. But this, this is what I was... I feel like I was standing in a crowd of just an infinite number of people. And just outside the crowd on the other side, there was a line, right? Like there was a barrier, but there was no barriers. There was nobody. Everybody was just standing there, all looking. They're all looking. And there's Jesus. And he says, come. And I'm standing in the crowd, maybe like the seventh rank or whatever. There's people in front of me. But I peek between heads and I see Jesus. And he says, come. And I, I edge forward to make sure. He's not, not saying to me, come. He's saying to everybody, come. So everybody, come. And nobody's coming. They're all standing there, all thinking about it. They've got their issues. They're wanting it, questions, whatever. Some of them are looking at each other. Lots of them are looking at each other. Some are looking at idols or things they think are important or whatever. They're looking everywhere else. Jesus just come. And I'm looking at Jesus. He says, come. And I edge forward. I'm like in the third row now. And he says, come. And the people are milling about in front of me. It looks like they're thinking about going, but they're not coming. They're bumping up against each other and stuff. They're not. But nobody's coming out. Nobody's going. Just come. Nobody's going. And so I reach my hand between two people and I go like this, like I'm swimming. And I push the people away, and then suddenly, now I'm in the very front. And I don't see anybody, all those infinite number of people that were there, I don't see any of them. All I see is Jesus. That's the Israelites coming out of Egypt. It's Peter running to the cave, to the tomb. It's me, when I was sitting in the pew, week after week after week, thinking, thinking, thinking. And they were like, Jesus is saying, come. And I'm like, yeah, I think maybe. And then finally it was like, I think he's saying, come to me, you know? And then I'm like, so I'm going to go. But nobody else is going. Nobody else is walking forward. Nobody else is making a decision. Nobody else is saying anything. And I just go like this. And put everyone else. And I'm not saying forget everybody. I'm not saying dismiss your family. I mean, if it, if it takes you dismissing your family to get saved, you better do it because in eternity you're going to regret it. You don't. But Jesus doesn't want us to dismiss our families. We're called to be, men are called to be a dad, uh, called to be a, a husband before anything else. But before we're called to be a dad and a husband, we're called to be saved, to have an eternity, to have a relationship with God. And then in that, God calls us to be a dad and a husband, and, and women to be a wife and a mother when that's how He ordains it. But you've got to swim your way forward out of the crowd and say, Me and Jesus. And if your eyes are on Jesus, when Stephen was being stoned, you read the story for yourself, but I believe he did not see his attackers. He did not see the stones. And I don't know that he felt the pain leading up to his death. But he was looking at the throne of God and could see Jesus. The Word says he was looking there and could see Jesus. And the glory of God showed on his face as he was looking there. And all the more, they wanted to kill him. If you will put the world behind you, focus on Jesus. Yeah, it's going to cause some problems with some folks. Some people aren't going to like what you have to say or what you're doing. I, I commit this to you that here in this place amongst us, if we can figure out that that's what's going on, if we can figure out that we're doing what it is that God wants us to do, we'll never have a problem with it, will we? When we have a problem with somebody in this room deciding to do what God wants to do, even though you don't quite think it's the way it should be done, and assuming you know they're doing what God wants them to do, what problem would you possibly have? And should you maybe even be noticing, considering your eyes are supposed to be on Jesus in the first place?
not helpless. The world wants you to compare yourself to everyone else. Jesus just wants you. Let's bring closing the movie through. Oh, go. Um, I may have shared this a little before, but um, when we were at Canaan, Jason came up to me and he was sad and like, he wanted to go up in the front and dance with the rest of the kids that were up there dancing, but he was, yep. he was too afraid. And I told him, I was like, why are you afraid? He's like, well, because I'm afraid they'll make fun of me. Like, Jason, it doesn't matter what people think about you. Like, what matters is what you think and what God thinks. I was like, if you want to do it, just go ahead and do it. And I was like, the problem is you're thinking about it too much. And I think that's what we get a lot. We start thinking yeah. about it too much. And yeah. instead of just jumping in and doing it, we think about it, think about it some more, and then it never actually happens. So if you're ever on the fence of like, okay, well, is this really what God wants for me? 